Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. We are talking quarterbacks here on the QB Sco Show, episode 32, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist. That's K-I-S-T. As always, here to break down enemy quarterbacks coming up for the Eagles each week is quarterback number one in my heart, Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark, brother, let me tell you. This season, and I, look, I don't want to spoil your, your intro or anything like that, but I know you have a historical reference that you're going to tie in to my favorite quarterback in the league. But first, I want to ask you because I care, number one, how you doing? Because after week one of NFL action, it's been kicking my butt. I forgot what the grind was like, and I'd be lying if I said I was, I didn't feel like I was drinking water through a fire hose with a straw right now. Yeah, my friend, the, the grind is real, and I can already tell... Look, I have the immune system of a sieve, okay? <laughs> like, I, and with kids in school, I already fought off like a sinus thing this week. You're watching film all the time. You're hopping on radio bits here and there, like all over the place. You forget who you're talking to. You call people by the raw name. Like, it's just- <laughs> How'd the wife take that? Oh, boy. I walked myself right into that one. <laughs> yeah. That's that's just fantastic. <laughs> well, wow, we're back in- Bold and bigger than ever, friends. Um, yeah, it's it's like you said. You know, you're drinking. You know, through a fire hose. It's it's rough, but look, like you said, it is historical reference time, my friends. And this was actually suggested to us by a gentle listener. And we're going to go back to the Revolutionary War. And we're going to chat about the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, as a kid who grew up in the Boston area, and please, gentle listeners, don't hold that against me too much. It's certainly a part of my local lore. It was like field trips. My mom, who was a teacher in the Boston school system, used to teach in this area. You get the big monument and everything on Bunker Hill. It's this looks like the Washington Monument. It's a landmark you can see driving around the Boston area. It will help you orientate yourself as you try to get into and around downtown Boston, the North End, or wherever. But this battle and this monument are more than just local lore. They're perhaps the moment when a young nation started to believe in itself, kind of like when Rocky took Apollo the distance or cut the Russian. And after the battles of Lexington and Concord in April of 1775, the colonial militias chased the retreating British army back into Boston. But there was a peninsula north of Boston Harbor in Charlestown that the British wanted to secure. Now, the British still had control of Boston proper with their army, and they had control of the harbor with the Royal Navy. But they believed that this peninsula was critical to reinforcing their position and pressing their numbers advantage back west of the city of Boston, back into the suburbs, Lexington, Concord, and so on. Mm. But the Colonials learned on June 13, 1775, that the British planned to secure that peninsula and quickly set up position on both Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill and worked to fortify their position with you know turrets and things like that. 
dugouts, all those good things. Mm. The next morning, dressed in their resplendent red and marching in perfect formation, the British troops and the Royal Army sought to take those hills. And under the command of General William Howe, the British marched up the two hills in perfect battle formation, nice spit spot, nice and straight. And one of the commanders of the colonial garrison, William Prescott, would give it an order that would ring through history when he allegedly instructed his men not to shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. Mm -hmm. Twice the British, under Howe, tried to take those hills, and twice they were pushed back. Howe ordered them up a third time, and only then were they successful, forcing the Colonials to retreat down Bunker Hill back into Cambridge. But it was only because the Colonials ran out of ammunition that they were pushed back. And these hills, Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, came at a severe cost to the British in terms of lives lost. But more than that, the Colonials, in the wake of victories at Lexington Concord and having held their own at Bunker Hill, truly began to believe that they could stand up to the great British army. And this sentiment of confidence and national pride was reflected in a letter from Abigail Adams to her husband, John Adams, mm. which I will read from right now, dated June 25th, 1775. Dearest friend, which is a very warm greeting, dearest <laughs> friend to your husband. My father has been more affected with the destruction of Charlestown than with anything which has heretofore taken place. Why should not his countenance be sad when the city, this place of his father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Scarcely one stone remaineth upon another. But in the midst of sorrow we have abundant cause of thankfulness that so few of our brethren are numbered with the slain, whilst our enemies were cut down like the grass before the sky. But one officer of all the Welsh fusilers remains to tell his story. Many poor wretches die for want of proper assistance and care of their wounds. Every account agrees in fourteen and fifteen hundred slain and wounded upon their side, nor can I learn that they disassemble the numbers themselves. We had some heroes that day who fought with amazing trepidity and courage. Now, Mike, hmm. you and the gentle listeners might be wondering... Where in the world is this headed? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Because sometime last Friday on the old Twitter machine, you put together a greatest hits of sorts. A montage of mediocrity, <laughs> so to speak. And it was a series of clips from Mitchell Trubisky's game against Green Bay. And yeah. I responded to that tweet that I was searching for the right historical reference. And a gentle listener, Shane Half, at underscore H-A-F-F-N-H-A-F-F, at underscore half and half, Shane. responded... With the British charging up those hills, not once, not twice, but three times. So there you have it. Mitchell Trubisky, the NFL's version of General William Howe. That's incredible. I almost choked on my own words there. That's 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 awesome. Good job, Shane, on the uh, on the historical reference there, Bark. Excellent execution. Yeah, give Shane a follow, friends. Give Shane a follow. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shane. And Mark, I know this is like going to come as a surprise, but I don't have much dunking to do on Mitchell Trubisky. Really? Yeah, we've got better quarterbacks to talk. We're going to talk about Carson Wentz in this show. We're going to talk about Matt Ryan. And I was going okay. to say that the Bears could have drafted Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson, but I won't. Now, I was going to say that they could have traded back and gotten either of those quarterbacks, but we know that. And I was going to remind you, gentle listener, that the Bears traded up for Trubisky using their third overall, their 67th overall, their 111th overall, and a 2018 third-round pick to move up one spot. But that is old news. What I will say is that it's very clear to me that the only thing that separates Mitch Trubisky from Blake Bortles is that Bortles has actually outscored his kicker in a playoff game. It's very clear to me that Bears fans, some of them anyway, and I don't want to paint them all with the same homer brush, but some of them have decided to bury their head in the sand and shout into the muffled void that Trubisky never had a shot because he was under fire all game. But the thing about that is all quarterbacks face pressure at one point or another. And the construction of the offensive line isn't going to change. Some QBs deal with it. It's clear to me that Trubisky doesn't, as noted with his 20.0 quarterback rating when pressured against Green Bay, who forced him to quote-unquote play quarterback. 
Furthermore, I'd mentioned that David Carr said that he was a one-read and run quarterback, but you'd know that if you watch the film. The Bears picked the wrong horse, and I can tell you right now that they are regretting that decision. They are yet again going to waste one of the top defenses in the league, if not the top defense in the league. They will never make a serious playoff run with Mitch Trubisky. And Mark, I apologize to any Bears fans that have stumbled their way onto this feed through your work with Pro Football Weekly. I apologize because they're going to be drafting a quarterback in two years. That reality has sunk in for some, and my friend, those people are free. Free of the shackles of mediocre Mitch. Mediocre Mitch. Yeah, and what's what's interesting, Mike, is that, you know, when I wrote my post-week one bit for Pro Football Weekly about Trubisky, I highlighted the fact that he's making simple, dis- simple plays, simple designs harder on himself in a sense. You right. look at the picky through to end the game. It's double in, double China, some teams call it. You got the two in routes on the outside from one and two. Number three is running a corner. You get it against single high coverage. What do you want to do? You want to like throw that corner out, but you got to move the safety somehow. Now, the problem is they sort of bracketed Allen Robinson because everybody in the stadium, everybody watching on TV, my kids who were asleep were probably dreaming at that moment. He wants to stare down Allen Robinson and throw him the ball in this situation. Yeah. Not only that, double trying to seven is a very common concept yeah. in that area. The defense was all over it. He should have never thrown that. It's a very common concept for many college teams and yeah. some high school teams. So mm-hmm. it's something you should be able to read and execute. And if you don't see it, come off of it. But he was determined from the second he heard that play call in his headset, I'm throwing this corner out. Period. Full stop. That wasn't even his worst throw of the game. Like his worst throw of the game in my mind was the pick that he should have thrown to Savage, who just didn't catch it, <laughs> which was all curls against basically Tampa 2. They did a slight rotation in the secondary, but it was two deep safeties and Savage jumping from a quarter's look down into the middle of the field between the safeties. And he stares mm-hmm. at the receiver, who, by the way, is again, Allen Robinson, <laughs> and a rookie safety who was... As everybody who scouted him said, a tremendous talent, but more of a box type guy than perhaps a deep safety. When a guy like that as a rookie in his first NFL game is reading your eyes and jumping what you're doing, you need to reevaluate how you're playing the position. So I put this all together for Bears fans. And I sort of at the end highlighted the fact that Bill Walsh, who knows, who knew more about quarterback play than I ever will, than all of us combined in the football Twitter world will ever know, said that a quarterback has to figure it out by year three, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, look, it's year three and the clock is ticking. And I kid you not, the response I got most of all from Bears fans was his rookie year doesn't count. Because he was in a different system. Okay. (laughs) If you want to make that argument, fine. Well, then were you given, say, Josh Rose? I mean, Jared Goff, that same sort of year one doesn't count situation because I don't think you were. And by (laughs) the way, in his sort of year three or year two under that standard, he got his team to the Super Bowl. Yeah. What are we doing here? Year two is the new year three anyway in the the league. This is his – somebody said that they they were going to wave a magic second-year system wand over him and it would just automatically guarantee his development. Development, as we know, Mark, it's not linear ever or at all. That's the whole frustrating thing about it because I was on this show and other places saying I was cautiously optimistic and I know you sort of did to me, oh, come on, have a take, (laughs) like either be optimistic or not. I am glad I hedged a bit 
Because if I was really going out there saying, look, I'm in on Trubisky this year, between that and the Cole McDonald week zero (laughs) debacle, I'd be probably reevaluated my position in life. I'd be thinking about going back to be a lawyer because that's a tough way to start the season. So I'm very glad I put that cautiously in because what we saw on Thursday night was a cautious quarterback who has sort of that vapor lock moment. I was talking with Matt Waldman and he was just like, when you see him on these route designs, these simple designs that he should have been running since he was in high school, fail to do the simple things like looking off guys. But when you combine that with getting flushed from the pocket and running out of bounds three yards behind the line of scrimmage, rather than just flipping it forwards because you're outside the tackle box, when he doesn't have the presence of mind for that at this point in his life, forget NFL career, at this point in his just lifetime of playing quarterback, is he ever going to unlock that? Right. And on that specific play that you mentioned, he had Allen Robinson right in front of him, 15 yards down the field, wide open, waving his yeah. arms at him. He could he have done, he could have done a lot of th- different things better on that play. Even if he didn't see him and threw it away, that's, that's better than what he ended up doing. He took a sack from a guy that was playing in coverage because he couldn't, yeah. he was late on everything. And I, I don't yeah. think it's an arm strength thing. I just think it's, he was slow no. to process it. And that's why the Packers were breaking on it. It's a mind thing with him. And, you could say, look, it's really year two. Or you could say that he didn't play in the preseason. These aren't hard things. <laughs> They're basic things. Yeah. They're things that many college quarterbacks are able to execute and remember and think through. And he's struggling with them. And so that's the fear if you're a Bears fan. It's that it's not that he will develop. It's that he's he is who he is at this point. And like you said at the outset, like you pointed out, which is all I think completely fair. Are they going to hit a Andy Dalton-esque ceiling with him as their quarterback? And all indications right now are they are. Now, sure, they can turn around. It's just week one. Everybody overreacts that overreaction Monday. But it was a bad start. Look, he's going to throw for 120 yards. He's going to rush for a touchdown against the Denver Broncos team that just got lit up by Derek Carr. And the Bears fans are going to be in my mentions because he just wins games, right? That's that's what it's it's going to be. And And they'll be back. For a week, and yep. then they'll be gone. And it'll be a real roller coaster with him, but I just can't see them making a serious run with him. Okay, you are listening to the QB Sco Show. When we come back, we are going to talk some Carson Wentz. We're going to talk some Matt Ryan, some takeaways from week one. We'll preview week two as well. That's coming up next on the QB Sco Show. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, 
or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. And we are back on the QB's Go Show, episode 32, brought to you by SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation. Michael Kist here with Mark Schofield, QB1 in my heart. Mark, let's talk about the week one performance from Carson Wentz because, look, man, the guy might be good at football. And I've talked a bunch about Carson Wentz on this feed this week. So if you don't mind, I'm going to kick my feet up. I'm going to take a sip of this coffee that definitely isn't spiked. And I'm going to listen to you smooth my earballs with the sweet sounds of how you feel about his week one. I think if you're an Eagles fan, I think if you're a Carson Wentz fan or a fan of quarterback play, you have to be excited with what you saw from him. And I know it was a bit of a slow start, but I think overall, this was the kind of performance that you as a you know, as an Eagles fan or a quarterback fan or a Carson Wentz fan were hoping to see from him in this game and in this season. Because what impressed me the most about him and this is something we've seen from him before, the ability against the blitz, the numbers against the blitz, the calm in the cauldron kind of situations where he knows he's getting pressured, but he gets the ball out and he makes the right decision. Because as a quarterback, you want to get blitzed. You want to see those guys burning pressure because you can trust in the guys protecting you, but you also know that you're going to have an open receiver to throw to. You're going to have the opportunity to make a big play. It's not like having to pick apart a window against a spot drop eight-man coverage. It's like you're going to get one-on-ones. You're going to get busted coverages. You're going to get guys with great matchups with the ability to beat them deep. That's what we saw from Carson Wentz. But I think more than anything, what impressed me was the timing, the timing and the rhythm to the offense, mm. the throws that he was making on time, in rhythm, on schedule, getting the ball out as receivers were just getting into their breaks, let alone, you know, coming out of them. I mean, there was one play, first and 10, 12, 27 mark of the third quarter. It combines what we're talking about here. It's a blitz. He gets man on coverage on the outside. He's throwing the hitch and he just times it up perfectly. The ball is getting out of his hands as the receiver's sinking his hips into that break. It's that aspect to his play. Because if you think about Carson Wentz, the draft prospect, Carson Wentz, the rookie, a lot of the sort of criticism about him was the process and speed isn't there. The mind isn't there. He is a see it, throw it quarterback. He is slow to make up his mind. You can th- even think back to his draft process. There was mm. a play, a four verticals concept where everybody dinged him saying he's just <laughs> staring it down. It's because he was actually ahead of the game in the pocket. The time and the rhythm was a huge part of his development. We saw that on Sunday against Washington. Of course, look, the big plays are great. And the ability to, like, one of the touchdowns, the first one to Deshaun Jackson when he moved the safety with his eyes. Mm. Watching that game live, you saw them, Charles Davies, they showed the replay. They had a zoom-in look of his eyes. Mm. And you see him looking off to the left, looking that safety. And he just moves him a step. But sometimes that's all you need. Yep. And that little look, that little step that you get from that safety is the difference between having to punt and bring it on the PAT team. Yeah. And you saw it on that play and the live shot and the replay of it, it was such a great angle of it. But that's the stuff that matters. And if you think it doesn't, watch Tom Brady on Sunday night. Watch him moving guys with his eyes. It is so critical to the quarterback position. Rewind and re-rack the entire first 
half of this show when we basically crushed mediocre Mitch for his inability to use his eyes effectively. You saw that from Wentz on Sunday against Washington. So you put that all together, a factor in the fact, looked comfortable with his legs, was moving around well, made some plays in scramble drill situations. This is the Carson Wentz people were hoping to see. He extended some plays. He looked good in the pocket. The second touchdown to Deshaun, we've talked about a lot on this on this feed already, but audibly before the play, sees the coverage, gets into a smash divide type concept, has two guys screaming right at Monte Nicholson, and he's got he's got cake throws either way. So from a mental processing standpoint, uh, from like like you said with the quick game stuff, like I had predicted before the game, one of my bold predictions because Carson Wentz typically doesn't hit under two point four seconds and PFF's charting in, in time to throw. One of my bold predictions that he, he would hit under two point four. It didn't happen that way, but it was at two point four four. He was getting rid of the ball and letting the offense work for him, which is all Doug Peterson really asked for him. And then he was selective when he wanted to take his shots, and then he didn't try to extend plays if he didn't need to, but when he needed to, he was able to, and he was able to freelance and make things work. So it was a really encouraging signs there from from Wentz in week one. Let, let's get to the reason why we started this show to begin with. Let's get to some Atlanta Falcons quarterback, Matt Ryan. Fun week one, Matt Ryan facts for you right now. He had an abysmal week one. His deep ball was off. It was bad under pressure. Not Trubisky bad, but but there were, there were some issues there. Play action didn't help him, although I'm sure that the Eagles are going to see a ton of that this week, very similar to the looks that Washington gave them, and the Eagles very much so struggled against those play action concepts, so that's something to look for. Uh, Ryan did also take forever to get the ball out of his hands. Uh, Obviously, there's multiple factors that go into that. We know that Matt Ryan is a very good quarterback, especially when he is on his game. He's up there in in the upper echelon when he's at the top of his game, so his ceiling is endless, but it was a bad week one. What what do we take away from that? Because I know we beat up Trubisky for a bad week one. He doesn't have the pedigree, the background, the film sample, any of that that like a Matt Ryan does. Yeah, I mean, I think Matt Ryan gets a bit of a pass because we've seen him put up MVP seasons before and we've seen him play well in... You know, I think the past couple of years, he kind of flew under the radar, even though he was playing very well and playing mm-hmm. good football and putting up good numbers. A couple of takeaways for me from watching and studying this game and charting it were, one, there are opportunities to pressure Matt Ryan in this game. You know, whether it's off the left tackle slide, whether it's off the right tackle side, there were sacks where both those guys get beaten, beaten quickly, and Ryan didn't even have a chance to set up let alone go through some reads. And so I think it's another situation, I know we talked about in last week's show, where you can probably get pressure on the opposing quarterback with the guys you have and the things you can do on the defensive front. Minnesota blitzed him a lot early too. So they Minnesota were blitzed him a lot. He made some mistakes under pressure. You look at the pick he threw in the direction of Julio, they blitzed him. I don't know what he was thinking there. It was a situation where they had a pre-snap motion to the two-by-two formation, the defensive back trails, so he knows it's man coverage. He sees the blitz coming. They basically double Julio. Yeah. And he throw he forces it in his general direction anyway. Mm-hmm. And similar to the Trubisky discussion, sometimes when Matt Ryan gets pressured, his go-to plan C maybe, because I think he's better at getting through reads, is I'm going to force this throw in the direct, general direction of Julio Jones and trust that he can make a play for me. He did that here and he got picked. So that yeah. was a bad thing to see. They ran an absolute ton of of smash, mm. whether it was flat seven smash, just traditional smash with a hitch in a corner. It was probably because they get down early. They were seeing a ton of cover two, and that's a nice cover two bitter, but they ran a ton of it 
And so that's going to be something to watch. But I think the main takeaway, Mike, is something you touched on. He seemed slower at times than he usually is. There were opportunities in the downfield passing game where he was slow to pull the trigger. And you almost sort of wonder if the pressure was just messing with his process in a bit. But those are some of the takeaways I had. I do think that pressure will help. He seemed to make some mistakes under pressure. But the process in seed, he seemed to step slower. And again, I didn't chart how much he played in the preseason, but maybe it was a, that was a factor there as well. But let's talk about some of the, the, the major concepts from play action that they might run against the Eagles. As I kind of alluded to, that the Eagles were torched on play action by, by Case Keenum. 15.3 yards per attempt off play action. A lot of that has to do with some broken tackles on a 48-yard gain. But they also missed a bomb on play action to McLaurin that was absolutely wide open with the Eagles trying to run some form of dropkick coverage. And Darby never got depth. Uh, Benjamin Solek broke down that play on the timeline if you want to see that. But looking at what Atlanta might do that's similar to Washington... I think you're looking at the obvious, you know, the Yankee concept. You're yeah. looking at the burner concept. You're looking at different things like that, that they'll give a run formation, a condensed set, and then suck those linebackers into making that zone read step off the run action. And then they'll try to put it right behind them as Julio either clears out or, you know, if the Eagles did what they did against Washington, they'll just let Julio run one-on-one past Russell Douglas because that's, that, that, that's fun. But Mark, what did, what did you see? Right. Maybe some similarities between those two that the Eagles might have to look for from the play action game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit on some of the basic concepts we'll be looking for. I think a couple of others to keep in mind. They ran Haas a couple of times, hitch on the outside, seam, you know, from that slot receiver. We saw it, you know, if you watch Super Bowl 53, the Patriots ran it three times in a row. Did you see the one where they did like the the whip route in and Calvin Ridley like went to went to do his fade and he put his hands up like, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. And I don't know if he was doing that to try to like run like a oh crap route, like <laughs> you would in like high school, right. like where you fall off the line and then you get up and you're wide open. Or if he was trying to like time it to pick it for like the pivot or the whip, like coming coming underneath. I thought, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was an interesting route. I remember breaking that down and thinking, look, this is the nice little design here because, you know, you had that sort of scene from the slot guy and it looked like a nice little concept as he sort of like delayed when he was coming inside. Yeah. You know, I did sort of like that, um, but they that could turn into, I think, into a scramble drill situation. But, yep. you know, Haas is one, Dino is one. They did, they like to run Dino a lot, that double post where you got a post on the inside slot guy that usually occupies the free safety, which gives you that one-on-one outside with a wide receiver on the outside against the corner. They like to do that with Ridley on the inside and then Julio Jones on the outside to get him a one-on-one situation. They like to run Leak off of Yankee mm. where you've got the tight end, Austin Hooper, leaking across and then up vertically. Sometimes we call it Y throwback. So they like to do that. I would look for that as well. We mentioned Double China earlier. They ran it as well. They had half field concept where they had Haas on the right and they had double China to the left. And he threw a quick hitch on that Haas concept to the hitch receiver on the outside. But double China is something they had in there as well. Ridley looked impressive, I think. He had a nice release on a vertical route against press. So that was something to keep in mind. They threw some Y screens in there too. Mm. Um, so these are a couple of the concepts that I saw them run in addition to the, you know what we were talking about earlier with a ton of smash and the different varieties with flat seven, with a traditional hitch on the outside. And then they had sort of the smash with a seven on the outside and then an under route from the, I mean, a seven on the inside and then an under route from the outside. So they've got a bunch of different route concepts they will throw at you. But pressure, Matt mm. Ryan, and cover Julio Jones. Yeah, those are probably the <laughs> two first places to start. And and Jim Schwartz has done a really good job historically in the in the past few years 
against Julio Jones and, and the Falcons inexplicably because he comes out with some real stinkers of game plans. And then all of a sudden they play Atlanta and he's and he's freaking Superman. You remember last year after the game, him throwing his headset because it was job well done. They shut him down in the red zone. They, right. they were able to get it done there. And, you know, w- one of the routes that that you mentioned that, that I'll just key in on for the listeners, because we kind of talked about this on the Kiss and Solak uh, film review show, you mentioned that 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 dino route, that double post route. Well, the Eagles were like bottom of the barrel in DVOA against post, which is so weird because they play so much off coverage, but it seems like they tend yep. to squat on everything in the intermediate era and and then the deep stuff goes. Like they were tops in the league against digs and like intermediate routes like that, which is crazy to me than to also have that problem against post and goes and whatnot. So the Falcons will definitely test them vertically. From a deep ball perspective, uh, Ryan was off in, in this oh, yeah. game. But I, I think if he's clean, then you still have to worry about it, right? If he's clean... And he's not getting pressured and he's not having the clock issues in his head that he was, I think, against Minnesota. You have to worry about the deep ball because he's usually better than that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, part of it was the process and and part of it was the speed and the delay that we saw. But he was off. He had a bad game. And I I think he'll be better, you know, against Philadelphia. But I'm not sure that better is going to be good enough because they need to get a lot better if they're going to be the kind of team they hope to be. So that's a little preview of Matt Ryan as we head into week two for the Philadelphia Eagles. Before we get out of here, I do. I'm glad actually that we have time to talk about this because Nick Foles goes down with a broken clavicle and in his stead is going to be Gardner freaking we Mark. We have a reason to talk about Gardner Minshew again on this on this podcast. Is how incredible is that? It's fantastic. One of our favorite people down in Mobile gets yeah. a chance to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. And let's just say it. He looked, great. He looked pretty good <laughs> yeah. against Kansas City. Now, Kansas City has had some defensive struggles. That was their Achilles heel last year. Yeah. In that AFC Championship game, look, you can cry about the coin toss all you want. You had three third and tens. <laughs> Make a stop, kids. Make a stop, okay? Yeah. But Minshew looked good. And the interception was a doink shot off of Fournette on a check down, which mm. should have been caught. He had a nice little, you know, cover two hole shot that he threw. Uh, back shoulder touchdown, scramble drill touchdown, showing the swag. You know, we saw the picture of him with like the uh, unbuttoned shirt and the jacket and the aviator glasses, just looking me. like a hooplehead out there. Yeah. I mean, and look, let's just let's just be honest. If Mike Leach likes you, mm. we're gonna like you. Yep. And Mike Leach loves this kid. The guys over at Locked On Jags had a, a pod with Mike Leach talking about Minshew. I thought Minshew looked great. I'm excited to see the Gardner Minshew era. I really am. <sighs> They could have, they, oh God, the Eagles could have picked. Yeah, I oh. mean, I don't want to rehash the Clayton Thorson wars, <laughs> but. We were on the right side on that he, one. I don't like taking early victory laps, but given the way the season has started for yeah. me, it's I'm going to take one here. Yeah. It's already done, so I'm going to take one here. <laughs> any other victory laps you want to take or, or any other quarterbacks that impress you from week one? I'll tell you what, man. I watched the Baltimore-Miami game, and oh, I, told, yes. I, I told Solak, man, Miami didn't like hit the tank button, they ran over the button with an actual tank because that was an abysmal I, performance from them. Can I just can I just say, I just rec- I started recording my show for Thursday mm-hmm. and obviously Pat's Dolphin, so I had on our good friend Kyle Krabs yeah. to talk about Miami. <laughs> and we've all seen the video of Mr. At Grind to the Tape like doing the whiskey shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think he's out of whiskey. <laughs> Pray for our boy, Kyle. He is struggling right now. What's it like to not be able to enjoy football for a year or care about anything that happens on the field for an entire year? Like, okay, the process is great. By the way, they put the banner up for mission accomplished for the Browns rebuild. They look terrible in week one. I think they're going to recover. But still, like, that's, that's oof, man, it is like, rough. 
Mike, what's it like to have feelings? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but can we talk about the greatest slot receiver ever in Lamar Jackson? Because he looked pretty <laughs> darn good, my friends. He might not be a running back. He might not be a wide receiver. <laughs> and I love that he said that. Oh, I love that he said that. Yeah. Oh, man. Whatever I you mean, need look, to put we, a chip on your shoulder in the, in the yep. NFL to succeed, like, yeah, go for it, man. All you. Yeah. I mean, hey, who's pick 199? Who would be the first person to tell you he was pick 199? (laughs) Lamar Jackson looked fantastic. And yes, it was against Miami, who's, like you said, they're backed over the tank button. But he was doing things like they they ran a vertical concept and he was looking off the safety in the middle of the field to throw to the other side. It was a Haas concept. Now, interestingly enough, Miami failed to even have a safety in the middle of the field, but Lamar's still looking him off. Like he's doing those little things that you don't expect a running back to be able to do at the quarterback position. And for the second time in a show, I've killed Michael. I'm going to have to hit the cough button when I edit this. this Lamar Jackson, man, he got so much crap. A draft trader was abysmal during that whole draft process. The, the, The way in which people spoke about him. I mean, he is one of the reasons that I came up with the phrase that the quarterback position is the most hotly debated, least understood position in the league. I'm very, very happy for Lamar. I think he's going to be a ton of fun. Similarly, Deshaun Watson. Look, they lost that game, Ugh. but what was he was, what was interesting? I, I, I'll give a hat tip here to Jordan Reed over at the Draft Network. He dug up a tweet that I put out that draft cycle where I said, you know, when I think about Deshaun Watson, I keep coming back to these numbers. And it was his stats in the fourth quarter at Clemson, which were just astronomical. He had like 16 touchdowns, <laughs> two picks, like a 70% completion percentage. Super clutch. In the fourth quarter. And that included not one, but two national title games against Alabama. Mm. Okay. The guy was nails in the fourth quarter. And if you were wondering, I also dug up Trubisky's numbers, and they were like 13 touchdowns, five picks. Uh, Even Mahomes struggled a bit in the fourth quarter. Interestingly enough, it was Deshaun Kaiser who was like 10 touchdowns, two picks in the yeah. fourth quarter when he was in college. But yeah, interestingly enough, and I've said that now four times in a row, I think, <laughs> good quarterbacks in college that win games – tend to do the same thing in the National Football League. We've saw that with Deshaun Watson, even though they lost Monday night. We're seeing it now with Lamar Jackson. And his Jackson's feet, I think. Yeah. Perhaps even the most impressive part about his game because they were so calm, so settled. He just looked so comfortable back there. Not the like inconsistent step, narrow base, big base, overstriding that we saw in Louisville. He just looked calm, collected, using his eyes extremely well. It was just fantastic to see. Now, of course, the Patriots play Baltimore in a couple of weeks. So. Yeah. yeah. So that'll be fun. Do you think that the the improvement with Lamar there has not only, not only you know, year one to year two, I don't really count year one for a lot of rookie quarterbacks unless they like completely ball out because it's it's not really a, a, a hard signal for what's going to happen. I think year two and year three are more predictive, obviously. But with, with Lamar being pigeonholed into an offense and they kind of made this makeshift offense around him last year, it seems like... He is way more comfortable in this offense and seeing things much better. And as such, he's playing more calm with his feet, with his mind, with all that stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's because it's his offense now. It's not him running Joe Flacco's system. It's Lamar running Lamar's system. And this is also a nice little reminder to sort of take preseason practice reports and training camp practice reports with a grain of salt. Because we remember last year, oh, Mahomes is throwing all these picks in practice. It's because they were testing what he could get away with in games. Mm -hmm. And this season, it's Lamar is struggling. He can't throw. He can't do anything. He was sort of tinkering with some things. You could 
There's actually a podcast. Brett Sobletsky from SB Nation has a podcast. They had Lamar's quarterback coach on. And if you listen to it, they talked about how they were reworking everything from his base to his grip and all of this stuff over the yeah. offseason. They were still working through it in preseason. We're seeing a payoff. Yes, it's week one. We're all overreacting, but he looked really good. Look, it is year two of the QB Sco show. So this is the year where we really got to prove it. Like I said, year two is the new year three. No, but last year doesn't count because I was in a new system. Yeah. We started midway through the season, so it doesn't count. It's going to be the Lamar Jackson year for us. I'm very excited yes, for that. I am. I am very excited. So Got to work on my throwing base. So keep it here on Bleeding Green Nation. Of course, we have a slew of shows coming your way and already in the feed dealing with reviews of week one and previews of week two. More stuff coming this week here at Bleeding Green Nation. We thank you for joining me and Mark Schofield here on the QB Sco Show, and we'll catch you next time. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.